Hello, everyone. It's Hit Factory, and today we've brought along something of a ringer. Uh, our film today <laughs> concerns the uh, the insider track into Hollywood, into the inner workings of uh, of filmmaking, and uh, and we've brought along an industry insider, a, a friend of the show. And a returning guest, Rich Pearsall, is here. Re- repeat offender, I think, is another way to <laughs> Rich, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, well, I guess we can get right into it. The film that we're discussing today is the 1995 Elmore Leonard adaptation, Get Shorty, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. It's starring John Travolta, Gene Hackman, Rene Russo, Danny DeVito, a whole slew of people here. Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo. A young James Gandolfini. Is he young? I mean, he's not young, but it's it's <laughs> it's pre-Sopranos fame. Yes. Gandolfini like this and uh, some of his his Tony Scott work was. Yep. Um, but but all kinds of of characters populating this. Uh, you know, in it very much in the vein of an Elmore Leonard adaptation, which sort of, you know, has a a sort of tumultuous history over the course of the 70s and 80s and really sort of started to shine through again in this sort of mid 90s yeah. period when Get Shorty came out, uh, when Tarantino eventually adapted Rum Punch as Jackie Brown, Soderbergh's right. Out of Sight. So so we have a, a whole heap of successful Elmore Leonard adaptations coming out in the 90s here. But uh, I, I think for many people, this one still remains their favorite. And Rich, you you were very very excited to speak specifically about this film oh, because I love um, this film. It's just you know <laughs> it's a roller coaster ride. It's a it's an amusement park ride. That's what I love about it. I mean, yes, it's a it's a black comedy, but it's a black comedy with the emphasis on comedy. And mm-hmm. um, one of the things I love about this movie is well, there's a lot of things I love about this movie, but one of the things is I mean the 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 screenplay adaptation is so well done. It is, it's, it's, again, it reminds me of an amusement park ride, you know, just keep your arms and hands and, and feet inside the ride and just uh, <laughs> watch it go because it goes around and around and around itself. It's very, very cyclical, uh, the way mm. the, sc- the screenplay is written. Um, yeah, I mean, from an industry perspective, there's a couple of things. Um, I, you know, I was working in Hollywood in the 90s. Uh, I was not working for a, a major film studio like I am today, but um, certainly uh, involved in it. And it's very much a picture of uh, of kind of the scene that's happening, was happening then, which is different than the scene that's happening now. But uh, one of the one of the rules about uh, working in the business is that uh, you always sell the sizzle, right? You always (laughs) sell the Hollywood that isn't. Um, You Mm. always create the legend even larger than the um, than the reality of the industry, which, you know, uh, from my perspective is a very blue collar industry. It's a, it's a work a day industry, but Mm. the, the sizzle, the, the glamour, the, um, excitement of it all is what we all sign up to whenever we, uh, when, when you sign up to join the industry. And I think this film does a really good job of kind of, you know, carrying that forward, uh, carrying forward the, you know the romance of uh, of of being in the motion picture industry, even though <laughs> even though it's pretty much the seedy side of it with the Harry Zinn pictures. Yes, <laughs> we should talk about that. But you're rich. You're making me realize that this movie 
presents us with both sides of that coin. There is, on the one hand, the sort of romantic perspective embodied in the character of Chili Palmer, where he's uh, he loves movies, he can quote movies, he loves going to movies, he really wants to be in the industry, he doesn't want to be a Sherlock anymore, and wants to wants to be a movie producer. He doesn't think there's much to it. So we have that sort of like selling mm-hmm. the sizzle. Yeah. He's very much into the sizzle. But then you also have all these characters that embody the other side of the coin, which is the the sort of the baser side, the the side that's less glamorous and a little bit more, I don't want to say disappointing, but just well, uh, you sort of see the the underneath the, the sizzle, right? Of it all. Right, right. The, the underbelly. Know, as DeVito and says, like, the wise guy money. The wise guy money. Well, you you made me think specifically about Howard Zim being the one who Harry Zim. Harry Zim. Harry Zim who's, there's there's a Howard Zim. He's the writer of uh, he's a writer. Uh, of, he's a historian. He's a historian. <laughs> People's history of the United States. He's that that man is stuck in my head for several reasons. Um, but he does he does what you're talking about, right? Like he, he's got the Mercedes it's beat up, but it's a Mercedes. It's a convertible, (laughs) you know, he's like, he's, he's in the, the office with all the props and, and he's got the movie posters around him. So he's like really trying to sell the sizzle. And I think another thing that's, that you're also making me realize is evidence of this is his teeth. Gene Hackman is very clearly wearing prosthetic teeth in this yeah, movie like big shiny white teeth. About adventures on yeah for sure. it's uh, he's got to be he's got to project that image yeah but then he's also this like kind of pathetic tragic character those sort of that tension in hollywood of like selling the sizzle but also you know having to confront frequently um, having to do the, business, the underbelly right, the business of the business. having to do business yeah, yeah. yeah. well it, it feels very much like a story written by somebody who lived very proximate to Hollywood for a large portion of their lives, but still had some things to say about it, some things to <laughs> indict, you know? Yeah. And like, it's all in good fun, you know, like someone like, like Elmore Leonard, you know, talking about the origins of this as, as a novel that he wrote in the early nineties had been writing, you know, pulpy kind of crime mm. genre fiction for several decades now, many of which found their way to screen. You know, you had Mr. Majestic, uh, the big bounce, 52 Pickup, a, mm-hmm. a couple of other ones, you know, that came out. And then like what Stick, the Burt Reynolds one in, in the 80s. But but a bunch of like 70s and 80s kind of like pulpy crime fiction came out of this and, and into, uh, you know, got, found its way onto celluloid. Uh, but he wasn't he wasn't exactly like a household name. Elmore Leonard, his his pictures didn't really draw, you know, these big budget kind of productions like they were about to. And it seemed like he had a lot of things that he wanted to say and, and indict about Hollywood, despite, you know, a, a profound love for mm. for the the, the whole yeah. ethos of right, it, for, right, for right. The, the, the glitz and the, sh- and, and the sizzle, as you right. said, right? Like embodied in Chili Palmer. He, he seems to have this kind of loving reverence for a, a specific time and place in Hollywood. Exactly. And they you know, keep pulling back. He's obsessed with Cagney movies right. and Touch of Evil and, and all this <laughs> stuff, but goes and, and finds Hollywood to be kind of this like festering, gross kind of place in its modern era. Yeah, but but, uh, but, but he's able to hold it, on to that right. ethos. I mean, one of the first things that Chili get, I mean, that they really use to set it up is, I think the first thing they, no, it's the second thing I think that they talk about. Hey, they're closing the Grandview. 
They're closing this theater. You think mm. Momo wants to get in the theater? I could run a theater for him. I really like the movies. Um, you know, they, you go into his office in the back of the barbershop and he's got movie posters hanging up. I mean, he's got, mm, yeah. he's got the dream going into this. And um, <laughs> what's funny is that, you know, when he wants to get out of the, he wants to, you know, stop being a Shylock, get out of the, uh, out of the, um, of the mob business. And he gets to Hollywood and what he discovers is that uh, the mob business is in that business too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hollywood's all mobbed oh, up already. Man. Wait a minute. Let's I can't get away with this. Rich. But um, <laughs> I think one of the things that comes, you know, one, one of the redemption moments, if you will, of the film is that there's two kinds of, um, well, at least the, the film was portraying, there's two kinds of dirty money. Um, there's, you know, at the end of the day, Chile doesn't use dirty money to get into the movies, right? Mm-hmm. The guy who does didn't, uh, that didn't work out so well. Um, right. So, you know, I, I think that's a bit of redemption. Um, I think the thing that comes out of it also that ties into that that's interesting is that, you know, they're all talking about making this movie called Mr. Lovejoy. That film never gets made. <laughs> The film that actually right. gets made is the story that Chili brings with him. That's actually a really great story. That's actually from life. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that line mm-hmm. when Rene Russo says, um, <laughs> what, tra- what Harry doesn't realize is that you are the Shylock and this story is real <laughs> right? and it yeah. hasn't finished yet. And you're going to pull it together. Well, that's it. That's your movie. Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. No, that's half a movie with holes in it. Yeah, there's maybe 40 minutes of screen time. You, you don't have a girl, a female lead. And on top of that, you don't have anybody to sympathize with. You, you don't have a good guy. Well, the Shylock is a good guy. Harry doesn't realize it's a true story. That Miami flight that went down, it's on the news every day for about a week. That's where you got the idea? Well, part of it, yeah. Wait, wait a minute, you're not the guy, are you? The, the uh, dry cleaner? Leo. No, you, you wouldn't be talking to me if you were. No, I'm not the guy, Harry. But you do work for the casino. Oh, for God's sakes, Harry. He's the Shylock. So, uh, which uh, just drives the point. You know, you can't make a great film without a great story. You can't. And uh, mm. it all starts there. And uh, <laughs> we don't even know what Mr. Lovejoy is about at the end of the day. <laughs> you know? In fact, when he goes to see um, Martin Weir, um, you know, they're there to talk about Mr. Lovejoy. And what he does is he sells his own story, which is exactly right. what a producer does. <laughs> and so yep. he's actually learning how to be a producer by using the tricks of the trade that he learned being a Shylock. So oh, that's so funny. So the, There's that terrific line where, uh, you know, he's on the phone with one of his uh, mob colleagues back in Miami. And he's like, I don't know. I think I'm going to get in the movie business. And he says, what the fuck do you know about the movies? And he says, I don't know. I don't think you need to know that much to be the producer. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the money and selling this, selling the product, you know? Well, and the other, the other scene that makes me think of this conversation in particular is the one between Chili Palmer and Delroy Lindo and Delroy is Delroy's character is sitting at how, how I'm going to keep calling him Howard Zinn <laughs> um, at Harry Zim's office waiting for Chili to come in. He's just read Mr. Lovejoy uh, and he loves it for whatever reason. And they're talking back and forth about, uh, you know, fixing it up and writing their own, writing their own screenplay. And 
Delroy's character describes the process. And he, what he essentially says is like, you just put everything down on paper. <laughs> you get someone else to write in the commas and fix your spelling mistakes. And then you write fade out. And that's the <laughs> and end. That's, that's really that's really all it is. And I just love that. I love the idea of just like a, a, a gangster being like, yeah, like that's all it is. Writing a yeah. screenplay. Well, I love I, not not difficult. I love Chili's response to that. Well, then what the fuck do I need you for? What the fuck do I need <laughs> right. you it's for? Like if, it's that, if it's that easy, why should I help yeah, you? Why, or why, why should I get you yeah, to help what's me? What's your job here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. I mean, it certainly is doing a great job of you know, kind of sending up and laughing at it. And, and you know, it's it's often said that like Hollywood no- loves nothing more than like a movie about oh, itself, of course. right? No, and uh, this is and the most narcissistic one... business in the world. <laughs> Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you see plenty of these, you know, throughout history, but I I think that this one is is more successful than most at sending it up in in a a relatively good spirited way, you know, well enough that like at the very least people who are involved in that industry can kind of like laugh at it and and tease and poke, you know, it's it's sort of like a a a, a nice sort of roast of Hollywood. It is. It is. It's a really, really well done. And it as I said a little bit earlier, it almost cycles back on itself because it's a movie about a movie about a movie, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, it's all tied in on itself. I love that one, despite speaking of, of, about the cyclic aspects of things, I love early on in the film when uh, Gene Hackman is sleeping and Rene Russo pops up next to him in bed and says, Harry, there's somebody downstairs. And then later on in the film, She's sleeping with John Travolta and she pops up and says, Chili, there's somebody downstairs. Right. You know, it's it's it, I just like the way they kind of re-looped things uh, through the film. I also love the way the the film ended, not to cut to the chase here, but but, you know, early on, they oh, say, we you can know, talk about the, the ending the guy that I the guy I really see playing um, uh, Ray Bones is somebody like Harvey Keitel. <laughs> and then he does. Yeah. I don't and, and he's Penny not credited Marshall. in the film. I don't know if you noticed that, but they don't give him any credit. That very last no, scene. I there's didn't. there's yeah. Harvey Keitel and he's not credited. That's right. hilarious. I actually didn't I assumed he was credited for sure. Well, multiple uncredited people here. So Harvey Keitel is one. Penny Marshall. Penny Marshall was actually Absolutely. like, you know, be, behind the camera. And then also uh Bette Midler isn't credited oh, at credited? all in the movie. Wow. She's not credited at all oh, as, as funny. The, the widow of this this writer. I adore her performance in this movie. I think, you know, Bette Midler is so funny. She, I think a lot of people after a certain point, like, um, I think there was something about her that became parody which is sad to me because the woman is insanely talented oh but she created the parody of herself okay talk more about that (laughs) well i don't know that much about (laughs) bet midler but she is almost i mean she is a caricature of herself yeah in a lot of her roles like i was thinking too about um when she was in first wives club and i was like this feels like a version of bet midler that like she probably knows to a certain extent, but I think she's like one of those people, especially because she has a really formidable stage background. She can just come on to a set and like, I'm, I, I would not be surprised if like, she like read her lines a couple of times and then like kind of just winged the rest of it because (laughs) she's so good at coming on and just being like a total ham and like, 
having yeah. all these like over the top, like, you know, she does really physical comedy, right. With her face and her body. And I just, um, I just love Bette Midler and, you know, there's, everyone talks about beaches, but I think it's like the parts that to your point, Rich, I'm realizing now where she's potentially like playing a caricature of herself, this sort of like, you know, silly, intense woman who's, uh, over the top. who's like over the top, hypersexual and like, uh, and just, and just, uh, kind of, kind of a kook. <laughs> like <laughs> that's my favorite, but I'm, I'm, that's interesting that she wasn't credited. Yeah. There's a couple of those performances. I mean, it's, it's full of cameos and fun yeah. references and, and, you know, touch points like that. Um, before we get too deep into it, we should make an attempt. Oh. To explain the basic premise of this movie. We should make Rich make an attempt. I, I think that Rich would probably be the best person to do it. Because it's, it's, like you said, it's it's incredibly cyclical. It's it, There's tons of like metatextual elements to it. And it loops in and, and kind of twists and turns in on itself so many times. But but Rich, can you give us maybe like a, a back-of-the-box synopsis of what, what Get Shorty is about? This is an attempt, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys can, can augment it, but... Uh, you know, it's about uh, it's about um, a Shylock, uh, a guy who uh, works for the mob, and uh, he's uh, interested in motion pictures. And he gets an opportunity um, through chasing down a vig um, to go to Los Angeles and uh, explore what, uh, what 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 there is. Especially when he finds out that one of the vigs he needs to collect is a is a, a movie director. So um, as he is going to collect the VIG, he and the director start talking about this story. Um, just so happens that the director is sleeping with one of her, one of his stars, who is Rene Russo in the film, and he makes bad horror movies. Um, <laughs> Slime Creatures 2, I think, is one of his big hits, where she is uh, known for her ability to scream. Uh, as as his uh, as his uh, star, so um, the three of them kind of um, start working together a little bit on um, uh, a film called Mr. Lovejoy or selling a script called Mr. Lovejoy. As it turns out, Harry Zim, who's the director, um, happens to be also in debt to the <laughs> to a different. Um, uh, set of dirty money, which this comes from the drug business. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so he's already involved with the mob and, 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 uh, uh, Chili Palmer, who, uh, is, um, the, the main character for, from our standpoint, um, uh, is, um, you know, realizing that there's, he can't get out of the business, uh, being in mm -hmm. Hollywood because the mob's already in, in Hollywood. And, uh, so now he has to play, uh, he has to see how he can leverage his skills to become a producer because that's really mm -hmm. what he wants to do. Um, in the, there's lots of throwbacks. Uh, there's lots of, of interesting uh, vignettes of, uh, of, of classic films that he loves to see and loves to talk about. Um, Touch of Evil, Real Bravo. There's a bunch of them. And um, a lot of scenes in the film are kind of shot in a classic Hollywood setting, especially the scenes where once the girl gets involved in the film, they do a lot of uh, very kind of Hollywood sunsetty kind of shots to kind of throw mm. back to, uh, to, to that Hollywood scene. 
the end of the day, there's some there's some dirty money involved, and uh, the dirty money happens to sit in a locker uh, at the airport, and that <laughs> the little um, that little uh, uh, <laughs> MacGuffin plays over and over and over in the film. They get several people to try to get the money out, but at the end of the day, um, the money is uh, never. Rec- I, I don't believe they ever get the, the five hundred thousand dollars out of the out of the airport. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, Chili Palmer ends up not selling the story they're trying to sell, Mr. Lovejoy, but selling his own story, which is the story of mm-hmm. the Shylock coming to L.A. and learning how to be a movie producer. Um, <laughs> they incorporate um, uh, Rene Russo's character's um, ex-husband, Martin Weir, who is played by Danny DeVito. What's interesting about the film is that the set decoration people do such a great job. It's Martin Weir everywhere. They go in the bookstore. It's Martin Weir books. They go into the yes. airport. It's Martin, <laughs> Martin Weir's on Time Magazine. He's on Playboy Magazine. He's everywhere. He's got billboards so, everywhere. Yeah. I guess they really put those billboards up, by the way. What, really? the Angeline? Yeah. Angelines. They, yeah. Oh, they. I'm sure they did on the other ones, too. The the, the Napoleon yeah. uh, billboards, oh, sure they, they, they really put up in areas in, in Los Angeles. And, oh, that's yeah, funny. Sunset. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I know I'm I'm kind of butchering this. It's a very complicated story, as you said. But at the end of the day, they end up making Chili Palmer's movie. He ends up becoming the producer. And at the end of the day, it wasn't dirty money that got him into the business. He got in clean. So mm. uh, I, I, did I did I <laughs> how much of that did I wrap up? You did a great job. You did a that's, great job. That's more than I probably would have been able to, and much more succinctly than either yes. of us is capable of. It's because, like I said, it's I mean, it's a very classic Elmore Leonard type of story, you know, and and has characters that populate his movies all the time. Like I, I learned what a, a loan shark was from Jackie Brown. I learned mm-hmm. what what a bail bondsman did from right. Jackie yeah, Brown. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, like like these kinds of like CD like they're not even crooks, you know, but but they are. They're like they're like legal uh criminal occupations you know? really <laughs> right i love that one scene where where martin weir you know they're trying to he's trying to teach martin weir how to how to be a shylock and he said look at me look at me are you looking at me i own you i look at me now martin can i ask you a question yeah you're an actor actors like to pretend right we've been known to make believe pretend this you're a shylock mm-hmm. a guy owes you 15 grand and he skips town he takes off what are you doing? And Martin Weir, I mean, it's kind of a campy joke, but Martin <laughs> Lear is, is, is being a greedy old man. And, and Rene Russo says, no, we don't want you to be Shylock. We want you to be a Shylock. A Shylock. Yeah, so Shakespearean throwback. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, that's what these guys are. I mean, they are uh, the, the Shylock from the, from the Shakespeare is exactly what Chili Palmer is, you know? It's a right. guy who loans, you know, it's a, it's a, an organization that loans money at a ridiculous, um, uh, return rates on high risk things. And, uh, and if you don't pay, then they, again, according to, to, uh, Shakespeare, they take a pound of flesh, mm-hmm. right? So <laughs> I guess funny little anecdote I, I read here, apparently Elmore Leonard was, was for a time in the, in the eighties talking with Dustin Hoffman about portraying a character in an adaptation of one of his novels uh, that eventually didn't pan out eventually fell through and that martin weir 
in in the novel and then also obviously in 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 the script for Get Shorty is largely based on his interactions with Hoffman at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so and you can kind of so see funny it. Funny to me. This very like method kind of you know. Yeah. Right. Parodically self-serious sort of actor. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it feels very genuine to like what an actor probably thinks about the craft, you know, as they would call it. So self-serious and diminutive in stature. <laughs> I love the fact the way they figure out what they're going to call a movie because the movie is all about getting Shorty, right? It's about right. getting Martin Ware to play in the film. So they named the film what they thought they'd name the film, and the film is exactly about what. Chili Palmer wanted the film to be about in the first place, and they got Martin. They and they got Shorty. It's it's you know that's just another that's that's the overarching um, cycle I think, and that that the whole film goes through. I actually love the title of this movie because if you're not paying attention, you don't even necessarily make the connection that it's he's he says it once, right? Chili says it once at one point. But there is still something so evocative about the phrase that I was just like I didn't question it. I was like, yeah, that's the name of this movie. That feels right. And I think like one of the things that makes this movie so sticky is the kind of like world that it builds yes around Hollywood but also just like aesthetically um having a very distinct look and feel yeah. it's a it's a fantastic LA movie yeah there's a couple things that come out of that that are just you know again really evocative I guess I'm aging myself and letting you know that I was there at the time but um the, the <laughs> Angeline posters oh my god I, you probably don't know what those are no tell us about this yeah the legends legend goes that um there was a very uh um wealthy um I think he was a Middle Eastern oil man or businessman of some sort had a um a rather um voluptuous girlfriend who wanted to get in the movie business and so what he did is he put that provocative picture of Angeline on billboards all over town for years. Oh my gosh. They were <laughs> everywhere. And um, Angeline, I don't know if Angeline ever got a role in a film or not, but uh, those billboards were just, they were ubiquitous. They are, they were a defining moment of LA at the time because nobody knew who, who Angeline was Yet her picture was on billboards everywhere. And it was just that. It was just that picture with the word Angeline. And um, it, and they ran for years. What a perfect crystallization of like the sort of drive in Hollywood, right? Where it's like sex on a billboard, no context, just name recognition yeah. and like an image. Yeah. What's funny is that, you know, that 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 is kind of a... You know, it would have been a great gag if it weren't actually happening at the time that that film was being made. So it wasn't really That's even wild. a gag. It's a gag yeah. now. But at the time, I mean, those were really there. That was really happening. I that I love that. I love that they were actually there because what I was about to say is that those posters fit so perfectly in with the sort of look and feel of where they are in L.A. Like it just made sense that that poster would be above Harry Zim's office. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it just totally works. And I also just like, I didn't bat an eye and thought, Oh, that must've been a character that Rene Russo's character played at one right. point, like in one of his movies, mm -hmm. I didn't even think that it was a real, a real poster. Yeah. Well, in retrospect, as I said, it's a great gag, 
Um, same with the the restaurant they go to, Ivy. Ivy was the place to see and be seen at the time. <laughs> um, it's, you know, the fact that they, you know, you can look back on it now for especially people in the industry and think about when Ivy was there and that was like the place you couldn't get in. Um, it was actually there at the time. It wasn't a gag, you know? So they mm. picked it well. And I love the way that uh, Martin Weir ordered his food. It was it was just fantastic. You know, it just, I mean, <laughs> I, I happen to work for a, a studio executive and I have been to restaurants with him um, many times and he never orders off the menu. <laughs> never. That yeah. does not surprise he me. Just and then says, takes it to go. Yeah, he wants to. He wants something. He <laughs> wants to go with what he's feeling at the time, and uh, and it's so that 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 whole little scenario that they did where he ordered the white egg omelet and then didn't stay to eat it. That <laughs> telling you that happens. Uh, that's happened <laughs> several times when I've been out with unnamed a major studio executive, um, and. <laughs> does the very same thing question for you rich and i don't know how much you can tell us about this is hollywood really mobbed up the way that <laughs> the way that it's portrayed in the movie well um i will i'll talk to you about um a studio i'm familiar with <laughs> please without boy how do i how do i get into it well the short answer is yes but it's gotten <laughs> a lot better not so much disney um, Disney has always been pretty autonomous. Um, the mess that happened at MGM, um, was very mob driven. Um, it was, um, uh, although Sony ended up picking up the studio, it was, um, it was, it was engineered that way. Um, one major studio that I'm familiar with uh, was basically run by a company called MCA for years. MCA was based, um, out of Chicago, uh, and they they ran the jukebox biz the jukebox business that was their business and guess what that was all mob money um, hmm. you know it's gotten better um, I I don't see as much of that anymore um, and uh, as I said that uh, I can't name a studio that a studio that has a lot of uh, of of dirty money ties um, I'm sure production still does. Um, I, you know, I work more on the, on the, on the, on the, the actual technical side of films rather than the creative side. So can't really answer what's going on, you know, how involved Dirty Money gets in terms of um, production and, and, and that side of thing, in terms of, you know, the artistic side, the, the, the creative side, but on the technical side and the studios and whatnot, it's pretty clean. I'm glad you asked the question. Cause I was like, in my head, I was like, how are we going to ask this? But you just went right there. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, I don't want to get anyone off for, for no. you know, speaking truth or anything on our show, but, but it did, uh, it's, it's, I'm glad we're talking about this because I was actually going through a list of mob movies that were made in the nineties. I think it's like always been a genre that Hollywood's been interested in for, mm -hmm. you know, reasons of those two organizations being bedfellows. And I think also it's like one of those things that regular people uh, like being voyeuristic about, like they want to sort of see the inside of, of an underbelly that they don't necessarily want to access in real life. In the 90s in particular, just like an incredible amount of mob movies, like good and bad being made. And I was going through a list and it's like, 
a Bronx Tale, Goodfellas, yeah. you know, all all the ones that we know, right? But then, like, there's also, like, I, f- I had forgotten about this Joe Pesci movie, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Oh. Don't know that film. <laughs> Maybe better to forget that one. I, that one is not a good it's movie. Not, it's not good. But no. it was totally, like, running off of the juice of, like, Hollywood and movie-going audiences' appetites for this time and a place and and just being set in the world of Mm. the mafia and what i really like about get shorty is it's not a mob movie no like it it came up in the list right Mm -hmm. when i was sort of going through because there are characters who are mobbed up and who are who are um wise guys who are in the mob but wise guys yes but as you astutely pointed out in the beginning of our this conversation, it's really about Hollywood. Yeah. It's really about the business of making movies. Mm-hmm. And and that's one of the things I love about it is it's selling itself as a mob movie. So it's bringing you in because like in the 90s, we were all we were all wanting to get in that space as a, as audiences. We wanted to watch those movies. But it it totally takes you on a ride that like isn't really about those people and that world at all. There was another interesting um, kind of mob connection in it that uh, everybody kind of, I I mean, I I just, uh, last time I watched it, I caught it. Um, When, uh, when Kat, the, uh, the, the, the chauffeur uh, limousine company slash drug dealer. um, Right. Right. Delroy Lindo's character, right? Exactly. Um, When he takes Renee Russo up and holds her hostage and, and, and tells, uh, (laughs) tells Chili his address. He happens to use an address on Wonderland Drive, which is like, if not next door, in the same block of where the Wonderland murders happened, which uh, oh, was a gosh. big, uh, that was a big mob hit. Um, so <laughs> I didn't even catch that. Yeah, I caught all it last over this time thing. I watched it. It was like, oh, you, you're going to put this guy on Wonderland Drive. Okay, there you go. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I think what you're speaking to, Carly, is kind of this this greater narrative around specifically get shorty that came out i think in this era which is the tendency to misattribute i think the and and i'm saying you're misattributing i'm saying other people tend to misattribute get shorty's successes where its origins all these kinds of things i i've seen people do something very very um reductive which is place it in the pantheon of of movies that were like knockoffs of pulp fiction. Right. Yeah. Right. And and inspired by this, which is not really the case. Though though there is some connection here, obviously, There's, right? Yeah. First and foremost, obviously, it's that John Travolta, you know, John Travolta <laughs> is is right. One of the first roles he books post uh pulp fiction success. And in fact, I, I read an anecdote that he initially didn't want to do the film. And Tarantino was like, no, 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 do, do, do the movie. It's an Elmore Leonard adaptation. Do the movie. <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, Tarantino then options, you know, four scripts based on on Leonard novels, adapts Rum Punch a couple right. of years later. Right. But, you know, had had this profound love for him, you know, being like, and it's just funny to think, you know, people saying like, oh, Get Shorty is a Tarantino knockoff, when really I think Tarantino would be someone who would say, no, no, no. Pulp Fiction is an Elmore Leonard knockoff. Right. Like this, this movie is inspired by these kinds of novels. Yeah. You know, they, they, they get it wrong a yeah. little bit there. Um, and then too, you know, like, like, yeah, I just, the, the, the enduring kind of quality of this sort of, uh, this pulpy genre crime novel 
and people, you know, looking at something like Get Shorty and being like, oh, it kind of pops and the dialogue is self-referential and, and full of pop culture stuff. Like this feels very Tarantino. And, and again, it's like you're missing the point. It's like mm-hmm. Tarantino spent a, a portion of the 90s generating films and creating art that was a loving sort of uh, reference point to Elmore, mm-hmm. Elmore Leonard. Like, right. like he's, right. he's making movies that We've were inspired been writing by these stories for decades. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That right. is like, yeah, yeah, people just, I think, I think flip it a little bit, but, um, but the success of the movie certainly, you know, came about, I think, because people were already sort of conditioned to, to meet this kind of film, the snappy dialogue, the, the, you know, sort of, uh, the love lab- of movies, the love of movies, <laughs> the labyrinthine sort of, uh, character-driven stories and and all these like kind of quirky little uh little archetypes going on and, and bouncing around in the, in the movie and and the violence mixed with the comedy like all this stuff they were primed already for it by this yeah. this string of mob movies and, and stuff like tarantino coming out before it mm-hmm. yeah last time i watched the film i um I um, <laughs> watched it with a couple of friends and um, and I asked them, you know, so what was your takeaway from the film? One of them said, you know, well, it's a it's a dark comedy. Um, and the other one said, mm, it's not that dark. You know, it's a comedy. And um, with, mm-hmm. you know, with with some um, not gratuitous violence, but the violence is well placed. It's not over the top. It's just where it should be at the right time. To, to support the 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 pathos of the whole thing that the, the comedy mm-hmm. of the whole thing and uh, right and um, I I tend to agree with the uh, with the second um, I don't see it as a dark comedy at all um, I just see it as a I, I just see it as a as I started uh, as a it's a it's an amusement park ride uh, on the point of comedy versus dark comedy wholly agree with you that it is a comedy like a full-throated one at that. I think the thing that sets the tone for that, at least for me, for how I'm going to watch this movie and experience this movie, happens within the first, I want to say, five minutes of the film, um, which are some of the most violent five minutes of the movie. And that is um, the exchange between Tilly, Chili Palmer and Dennis Farina's right. character, <laughs> What a Ray great Bones. character. Oh yeah. my God. So, and I love Dennis Farina. And I love he the plays fact this that kind of character they, all the time. He carried that big nose and the scar on his head the, for the whole yes! film. Isn't that great? <laughs> and that's one of the things too, I wrote down when I was taking notes, I was like, I love that Ray Bones's character is operating at a deficit from the audience's perspective <laughs> constantly because he's injured and because he has this big nose and, and this scar down his forehead. But that, that exchange that scene when chili palmer you know comes in takes his jacket uh from ray bones (laughs) who has taken his jacket from the restaurant he punches him in the face and leaves and then shortly thereafter ray goes to chili's office to kill him and he's got his barbershop informants out on the front coughing to give him the signal that there's a guy coming in there to take care of you (laughs) And Chili shoots him right between, right between the eyes, but above on the on his center part, and then leaves him with this this line down his head. Like I, I just like I you can't not laugh at each of those each of those exactly. violent exchanges. Just so good, well, and, and that for me is what like 
sets me in the mode of like, oh, this is a comedy. Like, yes, there's violence, but this is this is a comedy. Well, I think the all- way he hops around and like yells like call nine fucking one 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 one. Right. <laughs> like <something like> that. <laughs> you know, I when I think about it, I think all of the violence in the film, I could be wrong about this, but I think all of the violence in the film is um, uh, is centered around um, Ray Bones. I don't think that there's any other violence in the film right. other than, well, I, I mean, yeah, Ray Bones is there if there's violence in the film. Well, Bo, Bo shoots. Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Yayo, and that's the oh, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, bone, yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Now we're getting into things that the audience may. It's another layer of the onion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the drug I mean, money. That whole I mean, we didn't even it, talk the, about the drug money, but that's. The MacGuffin is like, is central to certain elements of the plot, but ultimately like you know like you said rich it's like you kind of just like strap in and like let the movie go and by the end of it you kind of try to remember and parse out what's happening and like little plot details and and they're important to maybe understanding and to like like doing something like this and being able to explain the overall plot of the film but when you're experiencing it it's like i don't really know exactly what's going on right and it doesn't really matter that much because it's moving at such a clip that like eventually and i'm having fun sort it out yeah, and I'm having, and I'm having fun. fun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a, what a great name they came up with when um when uh, um when Mr. Escobar shows up at the airport. Isn't that a great there's that great scene in in the thing where all three all three um main characters are in the airport at the same time unknowing that the other ones are there, right? Oh right, so right, right. Oh, Chili's there to to play the little to 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 work the setup on the lockers. Mr. Escobar, who is the drug lord from Colombia, is coming into town to pick up his money and his nephew. Right. And Ray Bones lands at the airport to go see, and they all they're just three paths that all cross within, <laughs> you know, in movie time about five minutes. I don't know where to go with that, but it it was just a it was a fun scene to see all of these different, you know, elements that were kind of going to kind of a precursor to what was going to happen in the movie in the next 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> um, well, and it does sort of feel not to, you know, transgress in the way that Aaron had had been mentioning earlier. Uh, whether it feels indebted to Tarantino or vice versa, I, I can't help but make the Tarantino connection mm. where these characters from different spheres of of life, there will usually be a scene, you know, before the climax of the film when they sort of all cross paths, when several of them interact with one an- or not interact with one another, cross cross paths with one another right. without necessarily knowing it. Right. Or like you'll be set in a place where you know a handful of them are all there for their own reasons. And, and that I, I actually didn't even think about that when we were watching it at the time that, that all three of the main characters are in the airport Yeah, in that scene, mm-hmm. because, and I think that's maybe just a testament to how beautifully serpentine this story is. You're, you're sort of weaving in and out of all these characters and their motivations and the things that, uh, you know, thereafter, and you're along for the ride and you're not necessarily sitting looking back and thinking, oh, yes, like here, here's the objective point of view of watching this movie. I think this movie is really good just to go back to your amusement park uh, reference point. 
this movie is really good at just taking you with it wherever it goes. So you're not necessarily thinking about like some sort of larger, more objective point of view about the thing. It's, it's under mentioned, I I think in, in terms of uh, this film and and really all of his films, but Barry Sonnenfeld's a pretty solid technical director, (laughs) you know, like this film, I mean, that, that sort of like single take where, you know, Chili's walking out of the airport and then we, we kind of, you know, track back to, to Ray Bones and then, the camera just does this sort of like pan over and and then Escobar's Escobar, there walking right. out yeah, from, from the there. terminal as well. <laughs> There's another really great one that that uh, we rewound and, and rewatched a couple of times, where the the camera seems to be almost like on a on a swivel, like on a pivot and upside down, where it like kind of uh, it tracks a a plane landing, the airplane, which you and think then, is another then, plane going down, yeah. Right. Right. And then it and then the the camera sort of does like a full sort of 180 vertical flip and then pushes in on Delroy Lindo on like the hood of the car reading the variety magazine. Yeah. The coolest entrance for a character in my in my opinion. (laughs) And I you know, he he just has a couple of like really fun sort of moments. You know, I don't know necessarily that it's something that, uh, you know, like like some filmmakers, the, the the placement of the camera, the motion of the camera is meant to emphasize something thematically more grand, but it certainly is showy and fun. And oh, yeah. he brings a lot of that to this film. Um, and then you see it again later on in in Men in Black, too, uh, where he, you know, has has a little bit of fun with these these kind of showy. I, I love uh, the tracking settings. shot that they do up the stairs as um as uh, Chili and Renee show up in the restaurant and the, they're doing the, the mm-hmm. thing upstairs. And I mean, he's becoming his, his Shylock character as he's walking up the stairs, he's exuding this confidence and, and pulling himself together. And the camera's just tracking him right up the stairs as he's walking. And I, I love that shot. I just love the Me way too. Travolta pulls himself together in the midst of walking up the stairs, getting ready for an inevitable confrontation. <laughs> you could just see him go from being, hey, the cool guy that's hanging out with Renee to I got to deal with these wise guys now, you know. And the music cue for that shot is perfect. <laughs> like it's like the music clicks on and then it's exactly what you're saying. John Travolta's face changes. He straightens his tie. Yeah. He, it's, he becomes it's a the, really great shot. He becomes that other guy he's, he needs to be. You know, the other yes. thing that is really interesting. Um when you think about what it takes to be a great producer, you have to be a great communicator and you need to be able to, to um, relate to um, everybody in the industry, not just your peers. I love that, that, that relationship that he builds with bear, the James Gandolfi character. Yeah. Uh, you know, he knows he's got, he know he's, he's an out of work stunt guy and, and he relates to him <laughs> on his terms on, at his level. That one scene where they sit by the two, you know, they sit in between the two cars after the, you yeah. know, after the the locker um, setup didn't work. <laughs> you know, he becomes, um, he, he just shows that, you know, that is one of the, one of the traits of a successful producer is that they can relate to every, um, you know, every character, every uh, player within the 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 machine of making the film and uh, yeah. finding that relate you know finding how to relate to bear basically is one of the things that made him successful and made him stay alive actually 
Yes. Yeah. I love that scene, you know, after throwing him down a flight of stairs and then like knocking the shit out of him and like, you know, like collapsing his windpipe in a parking lot. He just says, get up, get up, breathe. You're okay. How you doing? What and are how, you about, doing how about after for? I threw you down yeah. this? Yeah. Great stunt, <laughs> you, know, man. you know, he cut and then he like gets him like blushing within like a few minutes where he's like, he's like, you were in movies. How many have you been in? Like, tell me. And he's like, oh, I've been in over 60. And he's like, wow, amazing. You've you got it all, man. These other guys, they've never, they've, they've done nothing that they can be proud of. Like, like what, what movies have you been in? And he's like, oh, you've, you've never seen him. He goes, no, 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 try me, try me, you know, as it kind of fades out. But it's, yeah, uh, it's a great scene. Yeah. I, I really like that movie, uh, that f- scene. And, and I really like gandolfini in here despite him trying to throw on like kind of a hokey like not southern good. accent not good he can't he can't do it yeah it, like kind of comes in and out his east coast just breaks through yeah, yeah. but i i do like his character bear a lot Oh, love bear and uh <laughs> i like the relationship that he and chili develop over the over the yeah and at the, in the closing scene he's he's a stunt man on the set you know they pulled every they pull everybody in on that oh on that closing scene Every mm-hmm. character, except of course the guys who are no longer with us, um, they're right. all working on the film. But I love that one yeah. scene at, at the very end where where he says, "Yeah, I'm not sure Martin Weir's the right guy for the Shylock." He's talking to I don't I don't know exactly who he's talking to, but he was saying, "Yeah, well, maybe we need to get somebody else." Maybe who do they who do they suggest? They I don't remember a couple a handful of people, but ultimately it comes back to him, and he says he says. Because Martin's too short. Yeah, exactly. No. Like, <laughs> you know, here's another interesting thing: the the get shorty is actually a double entendre, because the 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 original stories about getting the little short guy that um, you know skipped the the plane that crashed. He was right, a, getting a little short right, guy Leo. too. So it was get shorty there, and then when it came around to making the movie, it was get shorty again to play in the film. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I guess in the novel too, there's a really fun uh, little bit where the the Zim character uh, mentions to Chili that uh, if they ever made a movie about his life, he'd like Hackman to play him. Oh gosh! <laughs> and so I guess so. I guess uh, apparently Hackman was really averse to playing this this role initially because he didn't want to do many comedies. You know, he's a little bit more mm-hmm. of a serious serious performer, and and. I know, Carly, you mentioned this already to me, how how kind of different this role is for Hackman to do. And he like runs away with it. He's like one of the best characters in the entire thing. Yeah, I had made a note that this is a very different character for Gene Hackman. And I was looking at the other movies he was making sort of proximate to this time. This is the only comedy he did. And I think the thing that's so great about Gene Hackman is even when he's playing kind of bad guys, right? Or people with a, you know, a darker side. And I'm thinking specifically of The Firm mm. and Crimson Tide, right? He's yep. he's ostensibly the villain in both of those movies, but he doesn't play them without humanity. They're both evil characters who you understand and kind of at a certain point also can side with to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes him really great at comedies is he stays close to this, like really this, this humanity in the characters that are more than just words written on a page. And, and it's why you sort of don't bat an eye when you see him in false teeth in fucking (laughs) turtlenecks and gold chains. Like, 
it's just uh it works and he still he still brings so much uh to use your term rich he still brings so much pathos to those characters yeah. you kind of feel bad for harry you're also like frustrated by him but you do ultimately also want to see him succeed yeah, to a certain extent but he can't get out of his own way the can- <laughs> he can't get out he really can't. i love that one scene where <laughs> He, uh, uh, Ray Bones comes to visit him in his office. He said, look at me, look at me. I'm talking to you. Look at me. <laughs> Bones says, are you kidding me? <laughs> really? You're pulling He's that like, line. No, he knows the game. And he beats <laughs> yeah. the shit out of him. Yeah, yeah. The, the scenes that are in Zim's office, like the first one where, where Chili like tells him like, all right, put the sun in their eyes, make them sit here. Yeah. I'm going to be behind the desk smoking. <laughs> you don't mention who I am. You don't mention Mr. Lovejoy. Blows the whole thing. And then. And then he just blows the entire thing, like breaks every single rule Chili gives to him is like one of my favorite scenes in the in the film. Well, you got to give it to the set deck on that uh, on Harry Zim's office. It is so great. It's so good. It's so rich. It's so thick with, you know, movie props and posters. And and it's just a little too old. It's like, you know, obviously an updated a a vaguely updated office from the 1920s. It's right. It's, you Mm -hmm. know, it's small. It's, it's second story. It's, I mean, there's just everything. The, the set deck on, in that uh, film was, I mean, all of the scenes, well, most of it was shot on location, but that, that one was really (laughs) love that, uh, love that set. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about, and this is just a silly uh, idiosyncratic question, but the movies that they're talking about uh, in Harry's portfolio and the movies that Renee Zellweger's character is still making uh, based Renee on Russo. You know, what we see. F- or Yeah, God. The, the, the two 90s Renee's. It's a yes. rough day for me. <laughs> it's, um, it's morning for us still too. That Renee Russo's character is still making. You know, we see her come home from a day of shooting and she's got a wig on still and she's sort of complaining about the director giving her gruff for not, you know, getting to sort of like the emotional core of the the damsel in distress that she's playing. I found myself thinking like the movies they're talking about, these sort of like pulpy B and C horror films, didn't correct me if I'm wrong, Rich. They're not movies that as far as I can remember, were still really being made That's a good in point. the 90s. No, I mean, this yeah. is kind of a throwback to the Ed Wood kind of era. Of yeah, sure. that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. It's definitely more of that, like, more of that kind of, like, mid-century and, like, 70s era, you know, kind of pulpy. And even the movie posters that you see in Harry's office feel, feel very, like, mid-century, even just some of the stuff that's, like, the thing and the things that were, like, a little bit in the, even in the, 70s that they were still doing um where you have this sort of wide-eyed female yeah glaring at the camera like sort of in in terror um kind of like i almost sexploitation kind of films with horror yeah sexploitation you know like uh russ meyer films and stuff like that where women are just placed in this bizarre kind of and you're right i i don't recall because i was there um i don't recall those kinds of films being you know, having a resurgence at the time. So maybe that's just another, I mean, there's always an audience for any piece of content you want to make. Right. So, yep. <laughs> but, and so maybe there was a, um, a genre that had a following at the time that, you know, but it couldn't have been, you know, it, it, it was certainly 
way, way off mainstream. I took it as like a sort of stylistic slash temporal cue for the audience to sort of put us in a time and place when a producer or director like Harry might be of some success so that we see him as kind of like washed up. Kind of a has been. Yeah. Like these films. Well, because he's not making those films. Although, um, again, the, the, um, (laughs) the limo guys are investing in another one of those films. Right. Initially. That's true. And, and Renee Russo's character is still making them. I, I, I guess it was for me like less like, Oh, I consider this to be accurate of, of, you know, sort of these movies were being made, but more of just sort of like placing these types of movies, inserting these types of movies into this story because it works for the story mm-hmm. and not necessarily because it's a, you know, it's representative of the types of films that were being made back yeah, then. Yeah, that seems right. I, that seems right. I, I guess there's a supposedly a uh, deleted scene from the set of the movie that uh, Russo's coming back from with the blonde wig crawling out of the grave mm-hmm. all day um, where Ben Stiller plays the director. Oh. <laughs> uh, and and I, I i guess it's well you know very uh easily watchable and available online and on like the the dvd and blu-ray copies of this movie mm. I, I haven't watched it yet but uh according to what i read sonnenfeld said that it was hands down the funniest scene in the entire film but still had to cut it because it, it was too much of a digression from mm. the rest of the plot yeah. Interesting. right um <laughs> which yeah adding adding one more cameo and one more character may have been <laughs> may have been blowing the lid off a little bit but uh, i i am interested to to hunt it down and watch it yeah. after we I after know, we record too. here um i i did have something and i can't remember it now that was probably it the ben stiller thing yeah. it's, it's in the <laughs> water today cameo. i think we should talk about the location we should yeah we should talk about two things i guess you know and, and transition away from the movie a little bit into stuff that's like you know maybe maybe proximate and and uh and germane to to that there's a rich a a very meaty discourse happening right now in the twitter sphere about the best films uh set in big uh u.s cities and so there's a lot of conversation right now about the best new york's uh movie the best la movie the best chicago movie and the best san francisco movie and being that we're we're bay area based i was curious at the very least if you had uh a take on what the best san francisco movie location is. shot location well yeah a shot shot on location in san francisco you know a lot of people are come are bringing up the the, the french obvious ones obvious right yeah, there's you know, um, wasn't that shot in San? Yeah, that that's shot. French Connection. I thought French Connection was New York. Uh, then which one is it? Oh, oh, what's oh, it's the one with Steve McQueen. Bull, um, Bullet. 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 We yeah. shot in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah, Bullet and Dirty Harry are coming up a lot, as is the conversation. Uh, another yeah. Hackman another one. Another Hackman. Yeah. You can almost kind of picture uh, Harry Zim like sitting in his destroyed. <laughs> studio playing a saxophone sadly that is a disturbing (laughs) movie movie. i i reference that movie in my life a lot when somebody gets so obsessed about something that it destroys them we should talk about that film sometime i don't know when it was shot but uh what a film boy it's it's incredible yeah i love that i just watched it for the first time like within the last year aaron had been telling me about it for a while and he was like we've got to watch this movie and it's one of those movies that you know when you think about it 
there's not a whole lot that happens, you know, sort of like narratively, but it feels like just a, just a lifetime of shit happening over the course of like a couple of days. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's all, it's, it's really all intense. so inside the character. I mean, it's everything you just see him. Yeah. It's Coppola did that, right? Yeah. It was the one he did uh, right between Godfather and part two. Oh, well, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, four masterpieces over the span of a decade. You know, location shooting, I'm not, I'm not sure I have a lot to say about it, Aaron. I mean, to be honest with you, um, L.A. is, it's not a great location town um, mm. because it's so kind of, I mean, unless you're shooting in Hollywood or the Hollywood Hills, um, it could, I mean, there's no, there's nothing distinctive about downtown Los Angeles per se. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, downtown New York, certainly. But how much of that is shot in New York and how much of that is shot in, you know, on New York street at Paramount? Uh, that's a good question. Right. I mean, the, I don't know if you guys have been to Paramount, but the, 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 um, the number of, of, uh, locations on the back lot in Paramount that represent New York are immense. So, you know, you just have mm. to look and say, hmm. Um, yeah, that's a tough question. I don't really, yeah. but let's, let's come back to that one. The next time I come on, <laughs> what well, about, I what was... about Bay area movies? What about, what about San Francisco set? Is there, is there one beyond bullet in the conversation that you think is, is like your favorite or the one that you think best evokes the vibes? I'm going to pull one way out of the weeds here. Have you guys seen a film called Colma the musical? No. Colma, the musical. Yes. Is it about dead people? It's about the town where more people are dead than alive. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's it's a 16 millimeter film and it's a musical and um, it's shot all over the Bay Area and it's just beautiful. Just beautiful. Um, <gasps> okay. Something to think oh, about. Certainly not up. something that would fall in the genre of the hit factory. But uh, no, but that's a that's a great niche take. Doesn't mean that I don't want to watch it. Yeah, there's so many that are coming up. It it all got started, I think, because somebody made the claim that uh, the last black man in San Francisco is the best San Francisco movie of all time. And I think that it's a it's a good one and has lots of those settings. I, I think that people were more responding to the fact that it's a more recent film. And, and not one of those man, like kind of classic ones. And that that man was asserting that the last black man in San Francisco is the best San Francisco movie more for its politics and not because it's an actual like, you know, I can, really I can also example. tell you that San Francisco is such an expensive place to shoot that nobody shoots there anymore. Um, mm, what was yeah. the, what is was, it really? Yeah. What was the film um, that starred uh, Dwayne Johnson where he was rescuing his family out of the, uh, from an earthquake was it just called earthquake oh, san andreas san andreas oh, right oh, yeah you know um my daughter worked on that film and it the film was quote unquote set in san francisco they shot eight days in san francisco that was really? it. that was it yeah well we were talking about this on well i was talking about this with some people and, and mentioned on another podcast with some friends over at uh, Podside picnic that the the 2014 godzilla movie yeah, it was all played is shots. like it, it's it, its entire climax and final final act is set in San Francisco and it's all Vancouver. Yeah, it's <laughs> and they just use the, there's more plate shots uh, shot in San Francisco than there are actual location shoots in San Francisco because it's oh, too expensive. Yeah. Why is it so expensive? Well, first of all, it's California, so there's no uh, there's no production uh, kickbacks, so that's mm. why nobody shoots features in in California anymore. Um, 
and um, you know the cost of crew, the cost of accommodations, cost of food. Um, wow, yeah, it, it's yep. it's you know when you come down to it, um, where you shoot a film has everything to do with how much it's going to cost. Hmm. I never thought about oh, that. Absolutely. They will choose a location um, strictly based on uh, on production credits that they're going to get back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, huh. That's why so much is being shot in Atlanta right now. Right. Um, New York has some new, um, some, some new initiatives, which are feeding the New York uh, film scene right now. Albuquerque has some of the best. So a lot of things are being shot in Albuquerque. Northern wow. Ireland is picking up a lot because they're doing, I think, 35% production kickbacks. So wow, th- there's no kickbacks in San Francisco. You want to come yeah. to San Francisco, you know, you're putting up everybody at the Mark Hopkins and, uh, and you're paying $500 a night for a room. No, Woof. totally. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think it's, you know, telling too, that I think both, uh, the last black man in San Francisco and, uh, sorry to bother you, which was set in Oakland, the Boots Riley mm-hmm. pick from a few mm-hmm. years ago, um, were both made possible through a lot of grant money yeah. that was generated through like SF film and, and there other, you go. Well, other film, uh, you know, production uh, initiatives, hmm. you know, just because, yeah, you're right. Like otherwise they, they just wouldn't be yeah, financed. They wouldn't there. get made here. Yeah. You, none of the major studios will shoot in San Francisco. I mean, the last major that I can think of that was completely shot in San Francisco was, and I'm sure that I'm wrong on this, but uh, it was the uh, Woody Allen film. Um, yeah, I was Blue just Jasmine. talking Jasmine. about Blue Jasmine. Yeah. Blue Jasmine. Mm-hmm. Right. It was shot actually uh, right outside our apartment. Was it? <laughs> For part of it. There was a yeah. scene, at the, uh, a couple of scenes, but the scene at the end when Kate Blanchett's character is sitting on a park yeah. bench. That's in, that's in a park right behind my <laughs> apartment. <laughs> um, you know, what I was going to say earlier uh, before we got to this conversation is that I actually think this is a really good L.A. movie. It is a good L.A. movie. Yeah. Of the, you know, the sort of aesthetic trappings you feel like it's very Los Angeles. But the vibe of the characters. But too. also the vibe of the characters. <laughs> and to Rich's point that it does a really great job of of kind of pulling out that drive to sell the sizzle, mm-hmm. that that's a very LA mm-hmm. thing. Um, and that it also comes with an underbelly. I, so I'm, I'm putting this movie up in the Twitter conversation as a, a, a great, great LA, LA movie. film. Yeah. Good Hollywood movie along with like LA confidential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's a great Hollywood Chinatown. Film. Yeah. Those are all really solid ones. Um, I, I guess the only other thing, Rich, that we I wanted to get your take on and, and talk a little bit about is uh, obviously the there's some news around MGM this last week uh, in terms of uh, the Amazon acquisition yeah. and uh, and a lot of the intellectual property. It's all uh, being that's all they have. Being, I mean, all they have is the library, yeah. library and a distribution. Yep. Exactly. They, they don't have yeah. studio left. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I'm just curious what your take is on on you know maybe the uh, the slow kind of uh, I don't know, just this this sort of hegemony amongst like streaming services in terms of their intellectual property. Obviously, you know, like, uh, like, uh, I don't even know, Warner's, you know, kind of being subsumed and, and uh, yeah. And and I mean, just like everything kind of, you know, transitioning into, you know, a a relationship with these streaming giants and, and the focal point becoming more the, the property and the recognizable characters than the actual production of, of, new product and and just wanted to get your take on it just being someone who's been in the industry for a long time Boy. and maybe what what you see as 
the pros cons of those things. Well, there's a, I mean, there's, a, there are a lot of changes happening in the industry and a lot of more COVID driven, to be honest with you. I mean, hmm. first of all, people don't go to the theaters anymore. So mm -hmm. um, that business is um, really struggling. We're struggling with that to try to figure out how to get the, you know, how to get people back to theaters. You know, we've got Fast 9 going now and, and that's, that's, you know, kind of our great hope to, to crack the theater business again. So everybody's watching at home. And, um, you know, I saw this happen in television years ago when there were, you know, years ago, there were three channels you could watch and then there were four right. and then there was five and then there was 2,200. Um, it's <laughs> the, the slices of pies get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, so with that, you know, the major studios are, um, um, a, um, th their slices of the pie are getting smaller. I mean, case in point, um, MGM, I mean, MGM doesn't create content anymore. Yeah. Um, and the second side is how do you, okay. If people don't go to the theaters, how can I capture eyeballs with, uh, with my content and, um, streaming is the way to do it. You know, um, all all of the major studios are have association with the with with a um, you know with a streaming entity, whether it be Paramount with their Paramount Plus, uh, you know, having their own, or Disney with their Disney Plus, um, right? Or you know, Universal uh, um, working with NBC to 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 start Peacock. It's mm -hmm. um, so seeing um, you know the 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 two big newcomers, uh, uh, Netflix and Amazon come into town. They don't know anything different than anybody else about how to make content. In fact, what they're doing is they're buying their, um, you know, they're, they're, they're buying, um, mind share by offering mm -hmm. ridiculous wages to people that are working in the industry and have been forever to try right. to get in so they can, because creation of content is always, um, it, it always turns more, um, more, um, net revenue than, than, than distribution. So hmm. that's obviously yeah. why, they, why they're all picking it up. Do you think that, uh, do you think that this will ultimately lead to, uh, the, the latest bond flick winding up on, on prime at the same time as theaters? Um, yeah. On PVOD. I'm sure it will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. PVOD is a big thing. And, um, uh, we're having, you know, uh, my company's having great success with it. Um, Disney with Mulan, holy smokes, they did really yeah. well with that. On That mm. was kind of the first, you know, PVOD that really, you know, caught the industry's attention. You know, and yeah. if you wanted to see Mulan, what, you had to pay $25, $30 to see it? Wow. Something yeah. like that. That's great. Well, and they already greenlit a Cruella sequel, so yeah. clearly they're doing something right with those. Mm. You know, there's another thing that we should talk about someday, and we can do we can do this on another one, um, and that's the the rapid ad, uh, adoption of virtual production. It is hmm. huge, and it's coming like a freight train right now. Um, this is instead of location shooting, um, you basically shoot against a video wall, and um, there is so much of that. It's it's Mandalorian, you know. It's Mandalorian taken down to a a, a much broader, broader, broader sense. And um, so uh, that's a subject of another conversation. We can have. Oh, that. we absolutely need to talk yep. about yeah. that because now I'm thinking like, you know, there's a larger conversation to be had too about just sort of like the place for production that's 
a heavier lift and like actual production, like manual production of movies. Like when we think about, um, I'm even thinking about the, um, who are the guys that did, that did the, the one about the boy and oh, the flag? Leica. Leica. Leica Studios, the ones mm-hmm. that do the the animation like uh, like uh, Kubo and the Two Strings and and uh, Coraline and uh, Missing Link and, and all those You're kinds of films. I'm not familiar with those films, unfortunately. Um, no, I mean, they're, they're a very, very small, like independent kind of animation mm-hmm. house, um, and, and had some, some success. Cause I think Coraline was actually a, a Henry Selleck, uh, directorial feature. So, so had, you know, the kind of blessing of, of, a, a sort of maven of animation and, and stop motion technology come in and help them with their first, first feature. But, right. uh, well, I think when you come back to where's the great, where's the best location shooting, um, in five years, we will see less location shooting than we are seeing today because yeah. they're shooting. They can, they can send a crew in to shoot plates. Um, they can do a LIDAR scans and they can, um, they, they can basically, they go from pre-vis to, to, uh, uh, to, to visualization um, on a soundstage and you won't know the difference. And that's depressing. <laughs> well, you know, again, what it all comes down to is how little money can we spend to how make this money. content? And yeah. um, right. that is still cost prohibitive today, but, um, the, you know, I'm, I'm involved in, in it in my studio and, and, um, the costs are plummeting. And um, the ad- the the adoption rate is climbing, and there's going to be some point in time where it's just easier to, you know, shoot on the on a on a video backdrop of a street in New York than shooting on a street in New York. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's also signaling to me. And then I'll shut up about this because this I could talk about this for a while. But um, <laughs> that's also signaling to me a shift. on the part of the consumer as well, right? There was a point in time when we would have rejected visually that type of content. Oh, you can't tell the difference. I'm telling you right right now, we are, we, we, as a, as a consumer audience, we um, years ago adopted this notion that even our television episodics need to be cinematic. We, we, Mm -hmm. we're, we're not going to take flat lit, you know, TV style shooting um, as, as, as acceptable content. And so the technology as it's growing into this is focused specifically on making it as cinematic as possible. And hmm. I'll tell you, there are, there are shots in Hawaii five Oh right now, uh, on the beach in Waikiki that are shot in LA. Hmm. Wild. You can, you can't tell. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just brings us back, I think to, why we do this show and why we have such a reverence for, for films of this era in yeah. the nineties, you know, like it, it just the, the locations and, and, you know, kind of the, the, the pre digital <laughs> kind of moment, you know, where, where certainly it's coming out in terms of the visual effects and, and some of that, but, but it has sort of like a, a tangibility to it in terms of, of the films yeah, that well, are I being think the made art in, in and this the craft era. in, in, in the eras that, that, that this show focuses on, the art and the craft were really at a peak point. They were in about 1939, mm-hmm. and I also believe they were during the 90s. So yeah. these are times where the art had to be right, and the tech, you know, the 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 craft had to be right in order to, you know, pull together that suspension of disbelief that held people, you know, for two hours and 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 uh, and told a good story. And it was it was it really reached a pinnacle then. 
we were still shooting on emulsion then. You know, it wasn't that far after this period that, uh, you know, we started shooting digitally and that changed everything. Mm, Decisions right. were no longer being made solely by the cinematographer. They were now being made by committee in the video village. You know, all mm. sorts of things happened um, after um, this great period of films that you guys are focused on that. Uh, so I applaud what you do. And I'll tell you, anytime that you'll have me back, um, I'd love to come and talk about another film. Oh, you are always welcome here, Rich. That's right. Your your uh, offer is an invitation is uh, always always standing. Always okay. standing. Anytime you want to come <laughs> the on the perennial guest. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> and if you ever want to do a little bonus episode on on some of the uh, the shape of things to come in terms of uh, the the industry and, and what entertainment fun. and yeah yeah we fun. can definitely we can have you up for something like, that. like that. yeah yeah that would be a great conversation because I, I do want to have a longer conversation about this uh, about this virtual production because mm-hmm. it's fascinating and, and frightening and terif- at the same time. and frightening all at once <laughs> yeah. yes exactly we'll as, get into something all... I saw a demonstration the other day about something called metahumans um, which basically are synthetic actors. And like extras. No, no thanks. Not like extras. <laughs> like leads. Like leads. Mm-hmm. So we will have a we will have this conversation. Oh, we need we to have, have this conversation. conversation. Yes. <laughs> we'll get it. We'll get a little bit more read on it, a little bit more studied, and then we'll come back and do oh, something man. like this for sure. Metahumans. I'm gonna wake up in a cold sweat tonight thinking about <laughs> just that. Just screaming it, <laughs> just screaming it into the void. Oh, man. <laughs> but a reminder after this uh, this little aside that the the film is of course Get Shorty from mm. 1995. It's fantastic. So good. Uh, it's it's a romp. It's like, like, as we've said multiple times, it's just a roller coaster ride of a film and, and, uh, just bristling with, with wonderful performances and energy and, uh, watch it immediately. It's fantastic. Agreed. Um, again, Rich Pearsall, thank you so much for being here and, uh, for talking a, a wonderful movie with us today. Sure. Well, looking forward to, uh, to coming back. Anytime. And every time, maybe not every time. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a big commitment, but anytime that you want, All right. Fair <laughs> you are welcome. Okay. Uh, of course you can follow us uh, as always at hit factory pod. Be sure to subscribe at patreon.com slash hit factory pod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda, and we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.